do intend to preach this morning from Romans 8, 31 and 32. For the sake of flow, maybe we'll jump back there to verse 28. Some of you might be here today and saying, Man, you've been in Romans 8, 28 a long time. I know we've been camped here for a while, but lest this become tediously familiar, try to do this right now. Try to imagine that you're hearing this for the very first time. Look, not just for the first time for you, but the first time ever. Imagine you're back there, way back there. You're in the Roman church. Word comes. We just received a letter from the man of God Himself, the Apostle Paul. And rumor has it that when Paul dictated that letter, he felt that in some very unique and profound way, God visited him. And I have that inspired scroll right here in my hand. You don't know what it says. And I unroll it. Right to Romans 8.28. And I begin to read to you. And I don't know how it really was, but I could imagine there would be a little bit of excitement. The word comes. Just imagine what it would have been like for hearing this for the first time. And we know that for those who love God, all things... Not just some of them, all of them work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestinated, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. Verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? Now look. I'm fairly confident. You guys know... Paul didn't write this. He dictated to a brother Tertius. Remember that guy, Romans 16? And so when Paul was first doing this, it it was audible. You would have been able to hear his emotions in those words. I do not believe that when he got to verse 31, he spoke monotone to Tertius. I mean, you can't imagine that, right? After all that he just said, if you really grasp what he just said in those three verses... He did not just go monotone and say, what then shall we say to these things? Folks, to become a Christian isn't some little insignificant thing where it just means I go to church now. Paul says this thing called Christianity is unfathomably deep and boundless. Verse 29 foreknown by God as objects of His eternal affections, predestined to give off the aroma of Christ, called by God out of death 
and darkness into His marvelous light. We're justified. It means we've been given faith. We've been declared to be righteous. Already moving degree by degree towards glory. I don't, I don't have a proper tongue to say that right now. But I just ask you, Christian, if you can grip for a second a God that is far back as you can think, and then infinitely beyond that, and infinitely beyond that, and infinitely beyond that, God had eternal purposes, foreknowledge, affections of love, for individuals in this world, many of whom are in this room right now. And that He not only determined just maybe to not send you in hell, but set you off on a planet somewhere, removed, He actually determined to take you and make the very, the very essence of Christ flow from your being. robe you with the righteousness of Christ, call you, set His eternal affections on you, glory. I mean, I ask you this. Just, just think with me. What do we say about those things? If I went around the room and I said, what in the world do you say about these things? Do we say being saved from our sins is irrelevant? Do we say, I'd rather go try Islam? Is that what you say when you hear these things? Do we say, the riches to be had in Christ don't really measure up to my expectations? Is that what we say? What do we say? We might say, wow. What does Paul say? Paul, moved by the Spirit, says something for us here. The Spirit of God moves Paul to say exactly what needs to be said. And what is that? God is for us. Who can be against us? That's precisely what we say to these things. But remember this. Remember this. He is not for everyone. Do you know who He's for? He's for the ones He foreknew and predestinated and called and justified and glorified. Who are those? Those are the ones from verse 28 that love God. Who are the ones that love God? Except those who have trusted Jesus Christ. I want to guarantee you something. God is not for all people. Oh, most people think God is for them. Most people have the idea that God is for them. Do you realize what that means to have God against you? Listen. 
God is against a whole number of you in this room. Boy, you can just you can just kind of blow that off. Doesn't really mean a whole lot to you. It may not mean a whole lot right now. Sun shining outside. You go out, probably hear the birds chirping out there. Got nice cool breath or hot air out there probably to breathe. Clouds in the sky. Gonna go home today or stay here and have dinner. Looks like everything's pretty good. God may even allow you, some of you to go out there and, and satisfy and gratify some of your sinful passions and lusts. Folks, let me tell you this. There is nothing that matters more than to have God for you. And the only way we get to a place that God is for us is if we are the people in verse 30 who have been justified. And there is only one way to be justified. And that is by faith. And there is only one person that must be the object of that faith. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if that is not true of you, you are in trouble. Because God is against you. He is against you. And I'm not talking about a faith where you simply know that God exists. Or that the person of Jesus Christ was a true historical figure. I am talking about trusting everything to Him. Casting yourself totally on Him. Everything. To forgive you of all your sins. Not by any works you do. Not by any effort of your own. But solely on what He did. Solely on what's achieved by Him. And if you're not there, then the Bible says you are condemned already. And you are headed towards that day when you will hear, depart from me. And it won't be no sunshine then. The sun won't be shining on that day, folks. It will be darkness forever. But here's the thing. If you have looked to Jesus Christ in faith, then you know you're justified. But you know what you know if you're justified from verse 30? If you're justified, for certain, everything before it and everything after it fits. Right? If you're justified, all those who are justified are glorified. And if you're justified, it's because all who are called are justified. And if you're called, it's because all those were predestinated. If you're predestinated, all those are foreknown. You see, you got the whole thing. You're in there. And if you're in there, God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? Who can? Are you sure about that? But now wait just a second here. When Paul says who can be against us, he is clearly not saying that no one ever does come against God's people. Is he? And he is rather saying that when they come against us, they can never hurt or harm us. There are legions of demons against you, Christian. And there are wicked men against you. Jesus said the world would hate you. Did He not? Now look, all you have to do is look right over at verse 35. And you know what you're confronted by? Persecution. Let me ask you, if somebody persecutes you, are they against you? If you're in danger, 
And there's a sword. Folks, swords don't float around the room trying to stick you with nobody holding the other end, right? Somebody's after you. You go to, the, you go to verse 36, what do you got there? Folks, we are being killed all the day long. I'll tell you what, all you got to do is look around the world and you know that's true. Whether it's in Turkey, whether it's in China, whether it's in India, whether it's in Indonesia, Christians are dying. We are as sheep being led to the slaughter. Folks, Paul says we are being killed. We are being persecuted. Paul's point in saying who can be against us is not to say that there's no one who ever does come against us. Rather, he's stressing that when the devil and worldly systems and wicked men do come against us, it is impossible for them to hurt us. Why? Because God who is for you has set His will against your enemies to prevent them from causing you damage. Brethren, this is about your life. Men and demons absolutely will come against you. That's true. They may seek and will seek to sow discord in this church. I'll guarantee you that. They may seek to discourage, persecute. They may speak evil of us. They may call us a cult. They may give us a hard time at work, at school, at home. Demons may seek to disrupt your marriage your prayer life, your Bible reading, they may cause you sickness and pain. Men can steal your stuff. They can beat you up. They can hurt your body. Men and demons can mislead people you love and lead them away from the truth. All these things are true. But the promise of Romans 8.28 just shines here. It's that God works all this out for your good if you love Him. Pain and trials and suffering never produced anything in God's people but greater Christ-likeness. I mean, open your eyes to what God is doing. Sickness comes, our faith grows. Our stuff gets stolen, our humility is deepened. Satan ravages some in the church, our love flourishes. I mean, all the words and injury and malice our enemies throw at us only refine our faith, increase our reward, cut my throat, and what? I'm right there with Michael! I'm in the arms of my Lord. And what in the world can they do to me? So even if my family disowns me for my faith in Christ, I get thrown out of my job. Somebody runs me through with a sword. God is for me. Not against me. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my refuge, my shield, my stronghold. You ever hear that before? I mean, He only allows our enemies to touch us in ways that help us. He shields us from everything else. Christian, don't get discouraged. When you're like a dove and you're flying through this cloud and hailstorm of arrows and it seems like you're all alone, you feel exposed and vulnerable, everything seems to be against you, it only seems to be so. It's not really so. The God of glory is on your side. So my dear brother, my dear sister, 
sleep easy. Be at rest. Be at peace. Lay your worried head down in those everlasting arms. Now, Paul, what else shall we say to these things? Verse 32, here's something else we need to say. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Now, I took my title today from verse 32, not from verse 31 or a combination. I called my sermon the most basic argument in the world. I've used that title because the logic of Romans 8.32 is so simple, a child can understand it. It's an argument made from the greater to the lesser. From the hard to the easy. From the almost unthinkable to the more easily thinkable. Children! And I'll ask you this. If you want to buy a bike, that bike costs $100, and you're willing to spend $100 to get that bike, I mean, if I ask you, would you be willing to pay $1 to buy the same bike? Of course you would. I mean, of course. If you're willing to give the greater amount, it goes without saying that you would be willing to give the lesser amount. That's some of the most basic logic in the world, is it not? That is precisely the argument Paul hits us with in verse 32. If God did the hard thing and didn't spare His own Son, then will He not also freely do any lesser thing? The most basic argument in the world. So here's what I want to do. Since Paul is basically arguing that if God is willing to do the greater, He certainly will do the lesser. Then the main thing I want to focus on is what is the greater thing that God did so convincingly that leads us to believe He will do all the lesser things. You know what? This is no small deal here. Because it has everything to do with how you live your life and how you trust God in living your life. Because the bigger thing, the more great you see this first thing to be, the more you will be compelled to believe that He will give you vast storehouses of treasure in your life right now. And I don't mean physically so. I mean spiritually so. I mean, some of the things that hold us back is this fear that God isn't really for us. And He isn't really promised to give us all that He's promised to do. But if you will really grasp what He has done in giving us the Son, it will help to expand your vision and your eyeballs to see that He's serious about giving you a whole bunch. So, let's consider the greater thing. And here it is. Romans 8.32 God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. You have it in the negative first. God did not spare His Son. And then it comes to us again in the positive. But gave Him up for us all. Now you know what? I want to emphasize something right at this point. The force. I say this again. I know I just hit on this. I want to say this again. The force of Paul's 
whole argument in verse 32 rests entirely on feeling the magnitude of what it means for God to not spare His own Son. If that appears to be small and insignificant thing to you, then so will the conclusion of the matter. You see what I'm saying? Christian, you will in no way appreciate what God's determined to do for you right now unless and until it sucks the literal breath out of you that God did not spare His own Son. Now listen. Think with me here. It's not like God gave something sort of valuable when He gave us His Son. Now catch this. Look at the verse. Paul says, if God gave His Son, how will He not also give us what? All things. Now you think about that for a second. In other words, the Son is more valuable than all things put together. That must be true for Paul to reason the way that he does. If God will not hold back that which is supremely valuable, He will certainly freely give all things. So all things put together must be worth less than the one Son of God. That's the plain logic here. Y'all see that? Y'all comprehend that? The Lord Jesus Christ is worth more than all children and all sunsets and all wives and jewels and mountains and planets and stars and galaxies and rivers, oceans and lands and houses and men, presidents and kings and queens, armies and horses and feelings and emotions and loves and happinesses and hopes and dreams and futures and glories and everything that is magnificent and breathtaking and beautiful. And look, it's not as though He is more valuable and more magnificent and more breathtaking and more desirable than any one of these things. He is greater and more lovely and more supremely valuable than all of them rolled together. Amen. That's the argument here. We've got to get that. All things together, whatever they might be, cannot compare. They must be a smaller thing. And if they're smaller, then they will certainly be given to you. Folks, what God gave in saving His people was the most God could give. There was nothing left beyond or above. Nothing better. Nothing more noble. Nothing more precious. Nothing of higher value. Nothing of greater importance. God gave Paul's expression in 2 Corinthians is the only one suitable. Thanks be to God for His unspeakable gift. And for a moment, just move your thoughts away from the worth of Christ to the affection God had for Christ and has for Christ and will always have for Christ. This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. Boy, we read that. Have you ever let your mind just soak there for a while? This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. You know, 
This verse abounds with love and pleasure. If you will let your mind run with this verse, you can fall back and back and back into the very past depths and ages of eternity. And you can see there however in your mind you perceive of the persons of deity, but you can see them there. And there is a fire of passion spilling back and forth between these two persons, delighting, rejoicing, father to son, son to father. I mean, literally, God in ecstasy, swimming in eternal pleasure, totally gratified in each other's perfections and beauty, I mean, they are ravishing each other and being ravished. If we can talk on terms like that with a, with a man and a woman. I mean, it, the, these two persons full of joy and jubilation and merriment and content and complete along with the Spirit of God, completing all these triune perfections of love and fellowship, endless ages, unhindered, always abounding, wave after wave, back and forth, constant and uninterrupted, Hearts desiring one another, overflowing on every hand, perfect satisfaction in that relationship. It's not that God did not spare the guy over there that He doesn't care about. It's not the guy over here that was expendable and dispensable. God did not spare His own Son. The Son of His own love. The Son of His affections. God gave not only what was more valuable than all other things put together, He spared not the object that tugged hardest on His eternal affections. But don't we even know it need to go further than that? Don't we need to ask, what in the world does it mean that God spared not His Son? Spared Him not from what? This is exactly where the full weight of Paul's argument in Romans 8.32 should especially grip us. God didn't spare His own Son from what? He didn't spare Him from the dreaded cup. My Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from Me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as You will. We know what was in that cup. Every sinner who dies without Christ drinks that cup. Its contents are described in horrific reality in Revelation 14.10. God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of His anger. There's the cup. The cup of His anger. What's in it? Full strength. Wrath. There He is lying prostrate in the garden. Father, Father, He recoiled from this thing. Father, take this cup. Please take this cup. If only it might be Your will to do so. Please, Father, take this cup away. He whose worth surpasses the most glorious constellations and mountain ranges and lakes, and sun, and moon, and men, and women, and children, animals, plants, forests, meadows. He was the pleasure of pleasures to His Father. And He pleads to be spared. Father, deliver me from this cup. Here it is, folks. This is the greatest obstacle 
of all standing in the way of man's salvation. Would God, could God, might God be willing to do the inconceivable? Is God willing not only to let His Son suffer unimaginable anguish, but to suffer it at His very own hands? What would He really do? Would He do that? Could He do that? Could God do such a thing? Could God will that His dearest Son be ground beneath the grinding stone of His own wrath? Father, please remove this cup. Please let it pass from Me. Father, please spare Me. But let it be according to Your will. The Father's will? Would God spare His Son or not? Would He give Him up or not? Because if He would, our good could never be stopped. Once the greatest obstacle of all were overcome, once the Son of God were given, once the supreme sacrifice was made, every other obstacle would be minor. Everyone. Everyone would be secondary and inferior. The will of God to spare His Son or not would show His will with regards to every other thing for you. And what was the Father's will? Isaiah holds his breath. He says it was the will own father forced the cup to his lips and made him drink. And I'm not saying that Christ did not willingly give himself. He did. But even in that, there was a recoiling at the horror of what it would cost to really pay for men's sins. He forced that cup to his lips and made him drink. And what came out of that cup tore through every fiber of his being, it crushed and teared, tortured, miseries unspeakable. God did not spare his own son. My brothers and sisters, we praise God he did not spare him. That brings us to Paul's argument. If that's true, what does that mean for us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? How, brethren? How? That's the question. God laid it all on the table when He offered His only begotten Son. Can you see that? Now, how will He not with Christ freely and gladly and graciously give us all things. I'm sure you can see this is the most basic argument in the world. It only stands to reason that it should be so. There's no clearer logic to be found. But hold on. Even though on the one hand, there is no clear logic. On the other hand, 
this verse actually defies logic. Look, if one of my children were kidnapped, taken hostage, and I was willing to give a million dollars for their return, you know, you don't really have to ask me whether or not I'm willing to give $10 to get my child back. That's a given. God gave us the million dollar deal when He gave us His Son. So you really don't need to ask whether or not He's willing to spend $10 for you. It's obvious what the answer is. It's logical. It makes sense. But my brethren, there is something here that just doesn't seem to make any sense at all. Back in Romans 3, Paul declares a truth that none of us can run from. And I'll tell you exactly what he says. When God looks out across the scope of mankind, all of man, all the sons of Adam, and He looks at them and He sizes up their worth, do you know what His estimate of mankind is? Worthless! All of them! Put together! Worthless! Brethren, if I give a million dollars to give my kidnapped child back, that makes sense. That's logical. Any loving parent would do that. And if I would give that amount, then it's logical I would be giving, willing to give any lesser amount. But you would not think it logical if some thief broke into my backyard, reached down in the bottom of my trash can, pulled out the most vile, filthy, wretched piece of garbage at the bottom that's soaked in the stuff that sits on the bottom of a garbage can in the hot Texas sun, week and month after month, full of maggots and disgusting things, and takes that out. This thief runs off with it, and then I pay a million dollars to get that back. That doesn't make any sense. That's what God did. It doesn't make any sense except for one reason. Folks, that reason is love. There's no other reason other than that God determined to set His love on a people. God shows His love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <clears throat> I want to say something here. and Please hear me carefully. We sang a song today called Jesus, Lover of My Soul. Most of you know that song, we saw it today, we sang the lines. It says, it's all about you, Jesus, in one line. In another line it says, it's not about me. Now let me tell you something. We know God is very interested in His own glory. We know that for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, the cross is being proclaimed among the nations. We know that's true. But let me tell you something. God in the Bible says to His children, My love is about you. Folks, we have to be very careful 
that as we try to be all about God's glory, that we don't become unbiblical. Because the Bible never says once it's not about us. In fact, the Bible repeatedly says it has a whole lot to do with us. It, you know what the Bible says? If you, if you think sometime and you just sit back, this text we're dealing with, you know what it says? It doesn't say that God did not spare His Son for the sake of His own glory. Now, you know we can reason that out, and that's definitely biblical. But Paul did not feel constrained to always have to quantify and clarify everything he said. But I'll tell you one thing he says very clearly over and over and over and over again. You know what? God so loved us that He gave His Son. He loved us. It wasn't just that He loved His own glory, which is absolutely true, but He loved us. And we don't want to diminish that truth. What I'm trying to tell you is God sees a reason in the Bible to tell us that His love for us is of such magnitude and is about us and He does care about us and He is for us and He does have concern about us and there is something in all that love that actually has to do with us. It's not just that He loves His glory and kind of coldly bestows all this good on us. He really does have an affection and a love. You know, we look at the Bible and we find that for the children of God, there is glory. For the children of God, there is honor. For the children of God, I mean, you go to a text like you find in Revelation chapter 3, you actually find in Christ saying, I'm going to see to it that these in the synagogue of Satan come and bow down at your feet. That they might know that I love you. You know, when God's giving His children glory and honor and even almost what seems like worship in the Bible, we don't have to cringe and get all scared. Because I'll tell you this, God's glory is not threatened by it. God is all the more glorified by it. And He wouldn't speak to us in the terms that He does if that wasn't the case. So don't be afraid, folks. It doesn't reduce His glory. When He looks at you and He says, I've loved you with an everlasting love and it is about you. That's exactly what makes the magnitude of His love so unspeakable and so profound, so unexplainable. It certainly isn't because of me that He loves me, but His love definitely is about me. It defies logic. It defies reason. But it does not defy love. God spared not His own Son, but gave Him up for His all. And folks, you go into the New Testament, you have promise after promise after promise like this. All things are yours. 1 Corinthians 3. Ephesians 1, 3. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Matthew 6, 31-33. You have that aspect about not being anxious. What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? And he ends up saying all these things will be added to you. Second Peter 1.3 His divine power is granted to us all things that pertain. You guys see that? All things are yours. Every spiritual blessing. All things will be added to you. He's granted to you all things. Him not sparing His own Son is the very ground and foundation of every one of those promises. You know what? Do I have to worry? Do I have to worry that some endeavor like planting a church down in Corpus Christi that it's not going to all turn out for good? Do I have to worry about Do I have to worry that the resources will be lacking? Do I have to worry that I'm not going to have something tomorrow that I need? And don't you see the magnitude of what He did in the cross? He still says to His children, my children, open your mouth wide and I will fill it. I, I mean, come on! 
we're, we're so, we, we fret, we worry, we get so anxious, we don't pray. And so we really believe this. We walk around with our mouths closed most of the time. He says, walk around like this. Now, now Freddie, if I see you walking around like that today, I'll know why. But he really says, open it wide. Christian, I need to ask you something. How can you worry about the things that you do? Well, I'm done, but I just want to ask one question before I quit speaking. Is Christ yours? What's your answer? And I'm not asking you whether you know about Him. I'm not asking you if you know He saves sinners from their sins. I'm asking you if you have been saved from your sins. Have you? Don't play a game. If the answer is no, maybe all this sounds like some giant fairy tale to you. Maybe you're living your life clueless that God did not spare His own Son in order to redeem His enemies. But I can tell you this, He comes to you through me right now to tell you that there is forgiveness. You will come. We're moving on. I mean, we don't have long here. God's only given us a little time. Most of us in here, by faith we've received Christ. We found it to be more glorious than we can describe. Now He calls us to follow Him. You've come in here this day, you've caught us right at this frame in our life. We're following Him. Tomorrow we'll be following Him somewhere else. But right now you're now. You're following your gratification and lusts and the stuff in this world. You're following the very ways of, of the devil, the course. You know what? God beckons you through me to be reconciled to Him. There's a way. And there's hope. There's forgiveness here. I'll tell you what, this, this is the most massive, monumental truth that anybody could ever tell you is that the Father did not spare His Son but crushed Him for the sake of sinners. And I'll tell you what, if you don't believe that you measure up to that piece of trash that I described in the bottom of that trash can, I'll tell you what, you just think about your life. You, you take one quick look at it. You, you want to talk to me about righteousness? You think you're a pretty good person? Think about the things you've done in the last week. Think about the things right now that you would not want a single person in this room to know that you did in the last week. Why? Because it's so vile and filthy, you'd be embarrassed for the most rotten wretch in this room to know about it. You think about the thoughts that have gone through your head, flashed between your ears in the last day. And you tell me about righteousness. I'm telling you this. You come to stand before God and unless you have a perfect righteousness, you will not be allowed in. You say, what? Are you telling me you have perfect righteousness? I'm telling you, I do. Because it's offered to you in, by faith in Jesus Christ. You see, Christ earned it. I didn't earn it for me. I'm not telling you I'm good in and of myself. I'm telling you, Christ earned for me a righteousness that's going to make me presentable on that day. And I'm going to be received in. And I'm telling you, it's there for you. How? Oh, hear me. So often I'm afraid. I know this. Folks, Folks that have drug problems, alcohol problems, folks that may be homeless, 
folks that may be involved in all sorts of sexual sin, they hear about Jesus, they hear about religion, they hear about church, and all they think is a list of rules. Don't think that. Don't think that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not telling you there's a list of rules you've got to keep to fix your life and get religion. I'm telling you right in the scum and filth of your own sin, if you will simply look to Christ, He will wash it all away. In a moment. That's what justification is. It is a legal standing of perfect righteousness before God that's done in a moment. That moment, you take Christ Cast yourself on him. He's your all in all. From that moment, clean, accepted. From that moment forward, God is for you, never against you. Amen. You're dismissed.